If everyone could please take your seats. I know I've been incredibly uh, stingy with a coffee break, so my apologies, but we've got so much good uh, goodness coming up. I don't want to uh, waste any time. So I think uh, Senator Murkowski, Senator King, Admiral Z did a wonderful job in giving us the imperative the challenges and the opportunities. And now our next panel is going to really help us dig through the details of what ice-breaking operations uh, uh, mean, the challenges, the opportunities. And I think as we, as we view what the U.S. needs to do, one must always look to close friends and allies to see how they're doing their icebreaking operations and compare some notes. So I'm absolutely de delighted that Captain Anthony Potts, commanding officer of the Canadian Coast Guard, was able to, to visit with us here in Washington today uh, throughout a 36-year career at sea and ashore. Um, Captain Potts, you know, I talk about icebreakers. He's actually commanded uh, two heavy icebreakers, the uh, Terry Fox and the Louis Saint, Saint, Saint Laurent. And, um, and as recently, actually as in 2014, you uh, took a transatlantic voyage, I believe, uh, to the North Pole via the Fram Strait. So uh, uh, we're so grateful that Captain Potts is here. And he's recently served uh, as the Senior Project Director for Canada's Polar Icebreaker Project. So I think you feel our pain, or, or you, you feel the beginning of our pain uh, as we take a look at that. So we've asked uh, Captain Potts to give us his perspective on icebreaking operations, and then we'll just proceed down the line. Uh, we're very grateful also to have Carrie, Gary Rassicott, the Director of Marine Transportation Systems at the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, Gary, uh, I mean, he is, in my view, Mr. Icebreaker. Uh, he's really been uh, placed in a, a very pivotal role right now as director. And previous to this, he served as the director of the Global Maritime Operation Threat Response Coordination Center. I challenge you to say that three times fast. But uh, he's, he's been really uh, at the forefront of understanding the operational uh, response challenges and uh, uh, he is, although a member of the Senior Executive Service, Gary has uh, been a, an, a Coast Guard officer for 24 years and had a very distinguished career uh, in the Coast Guard. So we're very grateful to have uh, Gary's perspective. Uh, and so you have sort of governments thinking through these challenges, and then we turn to our experts. And we are delighted to have Dr. Lawson Brigham, Distinguished Professor of Geography and Arctic Policy at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Um, uh, Lawson has also uh, been a sh uh, part of uh, uh, icebreakers and has uh, served on the Polar Sea uh, as a distinguished uh, and long-serving uh, Coast Guard officer. But we really appreciate uh, Lawson's broader expertise. He was the co-chair of the Arctic Council's Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment, and he served as the Arctic Council's uh, vice chair of the Protection of the Arctic Marine Environment Working Group. So Lawson not only knows the subject matter, but he understands how the Arctic Council thinks about these uh, opportunities and probably is one of the foremost authorities on the northern sea route, if any of you have followed his writings. And then the person that members of Congress, like Senator King and Senator Murkowski, turned to when they want some answers on icebreakers.
Affairs is our final panelist, uh, Ronald O'Rourke, who is a specialist in naval affairs at the Congressional Research Service. He has served since 1984 as a naval analyst uh, and has just uh, written some of the most thoughtful pieces uh, on these issues. So really a brain trust on, on icebreaker operations and uh, Mr. O'Rourke will serve as cleanup to this very distinguished panel. So let me get out of the way and begin the conversation and turn to Captain Potts. And again, thank you for traveling for, for uh, somewhere from afar to be with us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you, uh, thank you very much, uh, Ms. Connolly. And uh, for this morning's discussion, I'd like to speak from the uh, Canadian Coast Guard's operational perspective. It's a very difficult uh, act to follow the, uh, the Commandant, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Uh, we had slides prepared this morning, but just for the essence of time, I'm going to uh, proceed without them. Uh, growing access uh, to one of the world's last great frontiers is capturing Canada's imagination and commanding the world's uh, attention. Most Arctic communities border on some sort of body of water, and the health and safety of northern residents is strongly tied to these vital waterways. An estimated 95% of all goods transported to the Canadian Arctic comes by ship. Thanks to the knowledge and experience of our people and our sometimes creative use of our asset base, uh, the Coast Guard continues to deliver important programs in the north and is positioned to pave the way towards increasing economic, scientific, and cultural opportunities into the future. It is not overstating it to suggest that the Coast Guard is critical to northern economic development and community resupply, as well as protecting Arctic residents and the country's northern interests. As such, our current priorities lie in the areas of modernizing marine navigational services, strengthening ice-breaking capacity, developing stronger partnerships, and pursuing international engagement. We also have very specific and important objectives in the North. These include preventing loss of life or injury, protecting the marine environment, supporting economic growth, ensuring Canada's sovereignty and security, and fostering international cooperation. The Coast Guard fleet is made up of approximately 120 vessels, 15 of which are primarily devoted to icebreaking. Six of these vessels deliver programs in the Arctic annually and also in the south in the winter. Coast Guard uses these resources to fulfill its core, uh, core services around marine navigation and security and response. Our marine communications and traffic services centers are our eyes and ears on the water. MCTS, as it is called, provides uh, shipping safety control zone information, navigation and weather warnings, vessel traffic services, and distress monitoring. In the Canadian Arctic, the MT MCTS hub is, hub is based in Iqaluit in the east and operates on a seasonal basis for eight months of the year. This presents a challenge to us when the Arctic shipping season is extending. The Coast Guard has a network of 338 short-range aids to navigation in the Arctic. Many of these are found in areas of challenging ice conditions, weather, and geography. These are currently mostly fixed aids, such as day beacons, ranges, radar reflectors, but there are also some buoys. All of these operate exclusively during the navigation season from mid-June and ending in mid-November. The Coast Guard is currently undertaking a comprehensive effort to design new 
as well as review existing aids to navigation systems in the Arctic. This will allow us to better meet mariners' needs and focus, and focus services along what will become our busiest Arctic routes, namely the Northern Marine Transportation Corridors. Icebreaking underpins economic activity and community well-being in the Arctic. The key, of course, to this is access. For example, mining and oil and gas industries have the potential to grow significantly. Coast Guard's vessels will break ice to keep shipping lanes open for them. Our overarching challenge, and I think the Commandant alluded to this for the U.S. Coast Guard's fleet as well, the age of our fleet. It leads to a lot of unplanned maintenance and necessitates vessel life extensions resulting in reduced capacity and availability, that so-called gap in capability. This situation is expected to continue until the fleet is recapitalized. As we plan fleet recapitalization, icebreaker requirements will need to be updated as will schedules for icebreaker deployments to coincide with mariners' demands who are arriving earlier and leaving later in the season than our icebreakers. The Canadian Coast Guard is the backbone to life in the north, and without the Coast Guard, coastal Arctic communities would be further isolated. This was a recent message from our new minister, which demonstrates his commitment to the Arctic and a continued important role for the Coast Guard. In the case of the community of Kugaruk in the eastern Arctic, the Coast Guard's icebreakers are the only ships able to reach that destination. While our vessels deliver only dry goods, we are generally relied upon to help support and accompany industry vessels delivering fuel, food, and critical supplies throughout the Arctic. We anticipate a, a surge in demand for search and rescue services as more and more adventure seekers, ecotourists and scientists head to the Arctic. Search and rescue services in the Arctic present unique response challenges due to the sparse population and long distances. Uh, whenever I'm asked the question or somebody makes a statement on what's the geography like in the, in the Arctic, I always liken it to a, a Dwight Yoakam song, uh, where no matter where you are, you are always a thousand miles from nowhere. <laughs> To compensate for increased activity, the Coast Guard is undertaking an initiative to expand our Coast Guard Auxiliary into additional Arctic coastal communities. This measure will immediately enhance maritime search and rescue capacity by more than doubling the current Coast Guard Auxiliary presence. The Coast Guard will also conduct a study to determine the most suitable and cost-effective options for further enhancing the response capacity in the Arctic and thus will assist ensuring adequate coverage throughout our proposed national marine transportation corridors. The Arctic ecosystem is very fragile. As activity in the Arctic ramps up, it will be critical for the Coast Guard to demonstrate that it is fully able to respond, respond to and mitigate environmental incidents on the water. Spill preparedness and response is more challenging in the Arctic than in Canada's southern waters. The Coast Guard has an important role to play with respect to ship source spill preparedness and response, given there is currently no designated response organization in the north. The Canadian Tanker Safety Expert Panel reviewed uh, the regime in Canada's north with a view towards improving ship source spill prevention, preparedness, and response. 
they proposed 25 recommendations, five of which apply directly to the Coast Guard. Uh, these include requirements to regularly review and amend response plans and to adjust our Arctic spill preparedness and response requirements and capabilities over the longer term. The Coast Guard has the greatest on-water reach of any federal department in the Arctic. There is an opportunity to further leverage this presence in support of broader Arctic initiatives and priorities. The geopolitical relevance of the Arctic is overwhelmingly economic in nature given the abundance of natural resources, mainly energy reserves. The Arctic is the focus of political interest in Canada's marine environment, not only because resources are becoming more accessible, but also because other nations are demonstrating their interest. While the players were once limited to those constituting the Arctic Council, others such as China and South Korea have gained access to the Council as observers and are positioning themselves to influence decision-making pertaining to the region. The Coast Guard is also conscious of many non-Arctic states that are showing interest in possible shipping and other operations in Arctic waters. The Coast Guard, Fisheries and Oceans Canada, and other federal departments conduct research across multiple disciplines. Scientists rely on the Coast Guard to support their efforts and meet their objectives. The recent search for the Franklin Expedition ships and research in support of our claim for an extended continental shelf are examples of Coast Guard assets utilized for both scientific research and exploration. While there has been a considerable amount of research done on multiple fronts in the Arctic, information gaps still exist which need to be prioritized and addressed and now will include the involvement of northern communities to build awareness and develop opportunities for partnerships. As we move forward, we must ensure the right resources are in the right place based on risk by using the framework of the Northern Marine Transportation Corridors. Corridors seek to identify the appropriate mix of navigational services, infrastructure, knowledge and emergency response services required to meet the changing demands of mariners across Canada's Arctic. Corridors will be used as the framework to guide northern investments to enhance marine navigation safety. Identified corridors will ensure the Coast Guard focuses its effort and resources strategically, ensuring that the finite resources are able to respond to an evolving demand. Over the past two years, the Coast Guard has led discussions and presented on the transportation corridors at various Arctic-focused forums, which has inspired interest in the initiative by members of the academic community and with northern stakeholders and indigenous leaders. Recent work build, is building support, so Corridors is not just a Coast Guard initiative, it is a framework supported by Aboriginal leadership, NGOs, academia, and industry. In moving forward with the initiative, we are currently installing multi-beam echo sounders on four of our icebreakers to allow for continuous mapping of the corridors and other areas where these vessels perform their operations. Along with the expected increase in vessel traffic comes an increased exposure of ships to the Arctic marine environment. Environmental and ecological studies are planned to determine where the most sensitive areas of the corridors will be. These studies will also focus on the effects of pollutants such as oil and frigid water, how it is dispersed by ocean currents, and how best to remediate. 
Research is also underway to understand the risks to marine mammals associated with increased vessel traffic and how best to limit them. Speaking of partnerships, the Coast Guard is committed to advancing operational issues of common interest with agencies fulfilling the function of Coast Guards in neighboring countries. The Arctic Coast Guard Forum builds on the success of the North Atlantic and North Pacific Coast Guard Fora. The objective of the Arctic Coast Guard Forum is to increase cooperation among the eight member countries on matters related to maritime safety, security, and it will be a subject not or sorry, a subject not covered by the other two fora. As well, the forum will facilitate multi-level collaboration and focus on the advancement of operational issues of common interest, such as search and rescue, emergency response, and ice breaking. The Arctic Coast Guard Forum is set to be an independent, informal, operationally driven organization not bound by treaty. The heads of the eight Coast Guard agencies, including Canada, have agreed that collaboration on such operational matters is to everyone's benefit and supports the work of the Arctic Council. To better protect our northern interests and resources and to fully leverage investments for greater harmonization, Coast Guard is strengthening its relationships with northern stakeholders, domestic partners, and international allies. The Coast Guard is also increasing its outreach and awareness building efforts in Canada's north by further engaging with northern communities and integrating local and traditional knowledge into its decision-making processes. Coast Guard icebreakers play an essential role in the delivery of federal programs and services throughout the Arctic. Canada's first polar icebreaker is expected to replace the Louis Saint Laurent as the new flagship of Canada's fleet. The polar icebreaker will be capable of operating the Arctic for longer periods of time each year and in more difficult conditions than existing icebreakers. The new polar icebreaker's enhanced capabilities will support Arctic priorities such as maritime safety, national security, law enforcement, responsible resource development, scientific data collection, and economic growth. The Louis Saint Laurent will remain in service until delivery of the new polar icebreaker, and that is currently expected to be in 2022. So in conclusion this morning, I think we can agree that the Canadian Coast Guard is a valuable partner and resource in the Arctic. As future opportunities open up, so will the Coast Guard's contributions mount. We look forward to working with partners in further defining a very successful way forward that advances common interests. Thank you. Captain Potts, thank you so much. Gary. Good morning, everyone. I am Gary Rascott. I, well, I, my day job is Marine Transportation Systems Director, I, and I oversee the uh, program management of the Polar and Domestic Icebreaking Program for the Coast Guard. I'm also the Commandant's Arctic Coordinator for the implementation of our Arctic strategy, so I kind of cover all ends of this. I, I always like, well, one, it's always a little tough to follow the Commandant, uh, but <laughs> thankfully the Arctic is such an expansive uh, theater of operations that there's enough to talk about, I think, to, to keep your interest. Um, I always like to listen to the speakers early on and, and, and hear what the common themes are. And what I heard was the most common theme was that the United States is an Arctic nation. Um, I think I heard that loud and clear from everyone. And I think that's very important because I don't think the United States understands that it's an Arctic nation. I don't think the general population that the, has never been to Alaska or perhaps up north on the East Coast side understands that we are an Arctic nation. 
And I really liked what Senator King, the joke he made to start about, about having 100% of the audience be smarter than you are in what you're talking about. That makes you all Arctic ambassadors. It truly does. I mean, you got, next time you come into one of these things, bring a friend. Let them help them understand why the Arctic is so important and why the changes in the Arctic are going to impact us so, so significantly. Um, I was going to Barrow about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, called my dad and said, hey, I'm going up to Barrow. We're going to go to, to see the uh, Prudhoe Bay. And he's like, Jesus, aren't you seeing enough to get out of that trip? What do you want to go up there for? It's too cold. And I said, no, I want to go. I, I, I'm interested. This is where it's happening. So the Coast Guard's been in the Arctic since 1867 when, when uh, we bought the territory. And over that time, We've been operating um, in, in sort of fits and starts, sometimes more, sometimes less. But as the, as the I guess as we entered this century, we figured out the Arctic is really, and, and it's a really bad pun, but you know, people that have heard me speak here recently, the Arctic, the Arctic is really hot right now. I mean, it is as a topic. We figured that out. We came up with an Arctic strategy to support the national strategy for the Arctic region. And it has three main elements. The, it's to improve maritime domain awareness, uh, modernize our governance and broaden our partnerships. The first one is improving maritime domain awareness. Uh, some of that is just knowing what's going on up there, but it's a little bit bigger than that. And we do that through our operations. Um, we do every year we do Arctic Shield, which is our standard uh, operation up there. Sometimes it's bigger, sometimes it's smaller, depending on the activity. Our focus here is that the Coast Guard will be where the human activity is. We've taken what we call a mobile and seasonal approach. So if there's a lot of activity in drilling, we'll probably be there. If there's a lot of activity in ecotourism, we'll probably be there. If fishing is going on, we'll be there. And lastly, if the shipping's increasing, we're gonna work on that. But it, it and then the Commandant alluded to it right at the end of his talk, these ships that we have allow us to be in a lot of places. We are constantly asked by um, both local communities as well as the people that wanna build infrastructure, where's the Coast Guard gonna put its big Arctic base? And quite honestly, we don't know yet because we don't know where the activity is gonna settle out, which is why we're fortunate enough to have this mobile and seasonal approach. If you've ever been up there, you know the distances are daunting. The cost to build infrastructure is amazing. So you don't wanna make a mistake by going in the wrong place too early. So we need to see. You know, a year ago, people would have thought the Chukchi Sea is the place to be because that's where Shell's gonna be. Maybe not now, given what, what we've heard from Shell. So we are going to wait and see how the ecotourism settles out, how the shipping settles out, and then we'll start to think about infrastructure. So right now we're mobile and seasonal. The other piece of maritime domain awareness is um, something we're working through DHS's Arctic Domain Awareness Center that we just put up at the University of Alaska at Anchorage is the weather. That's a big piece of Arctic domain awareness when you're up there. Think about this just for a minute. I have one short example. When we were, you know, Admiral Z was in charge of the, the Deepwater Horizon operation. And, you know, they had that, all that operation going on right during hurricane season. They could see the hurricanes developing off the west coast of Africa and had better than a week to figure out, do we have to move the rig? Do we have to take the whole operation down? In the Arctic, you have less than a day and sometimes hours to figure that out. That's how quickly the weather changes. That's why we need to enhance our ability to understand what the weather is as part of our domain awareness. The other piece is we just need to know who's up there. When I was visiting Barrow, we're meeting with the mayor and she's telling us about, you know, these cruise ships, they'll just pull up. Next thing we'll know, we'll see new people in town. We don't know where they came from. Now they kind of do, it's gotta be the cruise ship. There's not a lot of ways into Barrow, but 
she was just trying to highlight the point that we need to do a better job at understanding who's up there and what's going on. Um, now, we worked with our Coast Guard District 17 and the cruise ships are much better about uh, letting us know in the Coast Guard standpoint and Barrow know who's coming. But, you know, it's a dual thing. She's like, hey, we really like the extra business, but we'd really like to make sure that they're not unfriendlies either. So the second thing is uh, modernizing governance. And that really goes to the law of the CP. So I'm, I think we've covered that. Uh, we've covered those bases. So I would really like to get into the broadening partnerships piece. You know, I, in my last job that Heather referred to, I, I did a lot of security work, the Department of Defense, uh, DHS, DOJ, and, and state. And we had a saying that there, in today's world, there are very few single agency problems and even fewer single agency solutions. I don't think that can be stated any better for the Arctic. Nobody can do it alone. It's too costly. You just can't be everywhere at once. So we are working with at the state, local, and national level to broaden our partnerships. The Arctic Coast Guard Forum that the, uh, the Commandant talked about is one of our premier avenues to do that. And you know, it's, it's funny because, and, and I think Heather will touch on some of this in her second part, we get a little bit of static from certain elements about why you're working with the Russians up there. Aren't you reading the papers? Well, I'll tell you what, when, when, when you look at the Arctic Council, there's two things that everybody agrees on. You wanna keep people out of the water and you wanna keep oil out of the water. And if either of those things gets in the water, you wanna get them out as soon as possible. So there's some common ground there that we can work with everybody on. And maybe when we build from that, we'll see other avenues. So we continue to push the Arctic Coast Guard Forum as a avenue to keep a constructive um, sort of forum to allow us to serve both the environment and a safe and secure um, atmosphere up in the Arctic. The other, I wanna highlight just a couple of other pieces of our Arctic strategy as we put it together, a couple of key implementations. I think everybody uh, alluded to the, or heard the comment I'll allude to and a couple others, the Polar Code. You know, we've gotten most of that done. We've still got the uh, watch station and training piece to get through the IMO, but we're confident we'll get that this year. And I think Lawson's gonna talk a little bit more about that. Um, the Coast Guard has created a Center for Arctic Studies and Policy up at the Coast Guard Academy, where we're trying, we're not, I think we've got plenty of people studying the climate change and what's causing that, but what we're not probably as keen on is what are the impacts on an operational Coast Guard. So we are gonna to look to that to be this sort of the academic arm of the Arctic Coast Guard Forum. How do we figure out what the impacts of climate change are on Coast Guard operations? And I use a little CG on that because it's all the Coast Guards that we're working with. So we've, we stood that up about a year ago and uh, we actually hosted the, the first meeting of the Arctic Coast Guard Forum up in New London. And I, I look forward to, to some of the events that we'll be able to put together. We just finished up a workshop in partnership with the University of Alaska trying to look at how best to manage the waterways in the Arctic. Um, it's critical because as um, my friend Garrett Glang, the Admiral from NOAA says, he's in charge, of, in charge of charting. We know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the bottom of the Arctic Ocean. So, and everybody wants to go up there, so we need to know this. And one of our ways to mitigate those risks is to sort of establish, perhaps voluntary at first, traffic lanes, so at least we know, go where we know it's safe, and then we'll manage the traffic that way. And so we've had some workshops, primarily with the Canadians uh, this, this, this winter. We hope to broaden the discussion to the Russians, because if you only do one side of the Bering Straits, what's the point? So we're gonna work, work closely with those folks as well. The other thing I wanted to highlight is how we're working through technology. Our R&D center is working very hard to expand our ability to understand what's going on there in a timely fashion. 
Healy was up there. The commandant uh, alluded to a little bit of our work with unmanned aerial surveillance. We're doing the same thing down in Antarctica. We've got a Puma down there. That's, we're trying to figure out how can we see as much as possible, as, as cost effectively as possible. So I, I think we're, we're trying to cover all of the Arctic as best we can from a, a small agency. Um, we're working closely with the administration and the Department of Homeland Security. Um, we were very happy that President Obama put forth the Arctic Executive Order in January to, uh, to enhance uh, federal coordination. And for those of you that were able to participate or heard about Glacier, uh, where the president spoke up in, in Anchorage, I think that was a problem. It's, it's hard to say because you don't have a capstone event at the beginning of your term of the Arctic chairmanship, but it certainly was a, a, a great scene setter put on by the Department of State and all the interagency and as well as the state and locals. So with that, I'll, I'll wrap up here on, on our push for the Arctic. Oh, actually, there's, there's one last piece I wanted to touch on because I, I think we might have just overplayed this or overlooked this in the icebreaker piece. Um, as the waters open up, people are going to be more interested in the resources. You know, it's fish, it's oil exploration, it's ecotourism. I think that without sort of picking sides, there will be a competition for those resources. And the way you're going to win those competitions is through influence. And the only way you can influence the outcome is you got to be there. And so that's what the commandant's talking about when he's talking about 24 by 7 to 365 access. I, uh, I had the distinct pleasure of testifying before Congress last summer on icebreakers. And as uh, our, our chairman, Duncan Hunter, said, I'm a Marine. You can write all the strategies if you want. If you're not there, they're just paper. So that's why we need icebreakers. And I'll close there. Thanks so much, Gary. Lawson. Uh, good morning, Senator and everyone here. Um, Back to the icebreaker issues, uh, I, my first comment would be that there, for the United States, they're, no, they're not Arctic icebreakers, but of course uh, there are ships that operate both ends of the world, as, as the Commandant uh, mentioned this morning, showed his images of both uh, North and South, and reiterated that, you know, last summer, uh, last austral summer, the Polar Star was down in Antarctica breaking ice, is there again, uh, also rescued the, the fishing vessel, New, New Zealand fishing vessel. And, and also at the other end of the world, the, the Healy uh, spent uh, most of the summer operating about 4,000 nautical miles in the central Arctic Ocean conducting science. And so bo both of those examples uh, give you an idea of the presence of the United States using these ships at both ends of the world. And I would say that no one else does this, not the Russians. Uh, the Swedes operate both ends of the world with the Odin for science. Um, Germany operates the Polar Stern at both ends of the world for science, but no one operates the ships the way we do in a multi-mission mode, both ends of the world. So, so the ships represent uh, instrumental national policy, the sovereign presence of the United States at both ends of the world. Um, they're a capital asset, naval asset the United States. Different than the Theodore Roosevelt or the Jimmy Carter or maybe the John Warner, but nonetheless, in an integral part of, of the nation's maritime and naval strategy. I mean, it's just a different ship operated by a different agency, supporting a range of agencies since 1867 when we, when we purchased Alaska. So I think sometimes that's not emphasized enough here in this town. We can have a contract icebreaker, we can outsource to foreign assets, all kinds of novel and interesting uh, uh, alternatives to this, all trying to escape the budget reality. But, but of course, the reality is that these ships are important to the national interest of, of, of the country. Uh, they are capital assets, 
They are the sole um, maritime presence of, of the United States uh, in most regions of the polar world. Uh, you can high-risk environments, shallow water, wherever you're operating, these are really the only dependable and agile resources we have in, in the naval uh, inventory. I think Coast Guard Icebreaker is also a mobile Coast Guard base in, in the Arctic, multi-mission base. So when you talk about Alaska, it can support full range of missions for the, for the Coast Guard um, throughout the EZ and, and beyond. The icebreakers are also um, a unique polar capability, not only for the Commander-in-Chief, but for our uh, Northern Pacific commands. They're part of the Naval Inventory as Coast Guard ship and Coast Guard cutter. So again, if you sum up the reasons for having these ships, they're pretty sound, pretty clear, um, and, and it provides a unique capability for the U.S. Now, what, what are these ships? What, what are they not? Of course, they're not the contract icebreaker. Lots of commercial icebreakers in the world. Uh, commercial icebreaking uh, driven by, uh, as, as Gary mentioned, Arctic natural resource development. It's not sea ice retreat that's driving uh, future Arctic shipping. It's actually Arctic natural resource development. That's why the Russians have a large fleet to support this national waterway. So, I mean, the, the question for Canada and the United States is whether we'll match up with the Russians in, in numbers of icebreakers. We would if, if, in fact, we would have a national waterway uh, to support natural resource development. So that we'll see how that plays out in the future. You have to know that most of the icebreakers today in the world, most of the commercial ships, are independently operated icebreaking carriers. In other words, they're cargo ship, highly capable icebreaking ship, and, and they're operated solely w without icebreaker support, because icebreakers are expensive. Only really the Russians are, are in the Arctic, providing a big support network, just like they did in the Soviet Union, where you escort ships. Well, much of the year, at least three or four months out of the year, even in the Russian Arctic, there's free water or partially ice covered, and these icebreaking, highly capable icebreaking carriers can operate without icebreaker support. So I think we see for the future in Canada and the United States that might be commercial traffic taking natural resources out of North American mines, whatever, to global markets, but with independently operated uh, icebreaking carriers. Of course, you know that the Red Dog Mine in Alaska, the largest zinc mine in the world, uh, operators come, some are actually icebreaking, but there isn't any ice there in the summer, to the Red Dog Mine in Kivalina, and they take zinc ore to global markets. So that, that's the driving force for uh, the future of Arctic shipping. Uh, the, the, the Northern Sea Route is cast in, in many different ways, but even Russian experts say that the Northern Sea Route is a seasonal supplement to the Suez Canal. And those are translated words from the Russian, but precisely on, on the mark. It's seasonal and it's supplement. The, the retreat of sea ice provides greater marine access, longer seasons of navigation, but, but we're not retooling in the Arctic global trade routes um, any time soon. Anyway, the, the, the Northern Sea Route, though, is a focused waterway uh, right tied to natural resource development in the Russian Arctic and uh, deserves their attention and build up. Uh, just one more comment about uh, research that Senator King talked about. The, the missing piece of research in this town for more than several decades dealing with Arctic is serious economic 
resource analysis. All kinds of studies going on for decades on every other topic, except the central issue is what's the place worth? What are the economic drivers of the Arctic? What does this change in access mean to Alaska, Canadian Arctic, wherever? How is the new Arctic related to economic development and resource development? And I think that that's the one area where we're kind of missing, uh, and I know when I worked for the Arctic Research Commission, we talked about it a lot, the missing element was um, economic research. I think I'll, I'll stop there. Uh, a lot more to be said, I think, this afternoon about the Polar Code and Arctic shipping. Thank you. Thanks, Lawson, so much. Mr. O'Rourke. Thank you. Uh, as Heather mentioned, I'm the Naval Issues Analyst at CRS, but as part of that, I cover certain other um, uh, things relating to maritime uh, defense issues, including uh, Coast Guard shipbuilding. And in that capacity, I maintain a report on Coast Guard cutter procurement. I also maintain uh, the CRS report on icebreaker modernization. Uh, I am the uh, head of the CRS Arctic team. And in that capacity, I uh, initiate and initiated and I coordinate the uh, CRS report that provides an overview of Arctic issues. That's a report that has about eight or nine different authors. I was asked to talk today about uh, polar icebreaker modernization, which is the central topic for today's uh, discussion. Uh, for me, there's two really uh, anchor points to start a discussion about polar icebreaker modernization today. And the first is the, the June 2013 um, mission need statement on polar icebreakers from the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and that mission need statement uh, said that it establishes a need for polar icebreaker capabilities. It says that current requirements and future projections uh, indicate that the Coast Guard will need to expand its icebreaking capacity, potentially requiring a fleet of up to six icebreakers, three heavy and three medium. There's a couple of key words in there that tend to soften this statement. One is potentially, potentially requiring. Uh, the other is up to, up to three heavy and three medium icebreakers. So the fact that you have potentially in there and the fact that you have up to tends to soften that mission need statement. On the other hand, this is not simply uh, a statement from the high latitude study. This is now an official requirements statement, a mission need statement from the Department of Homeland Security. It is a requirements document that in my view, therefore, uh, serves as an anchor point for the discussion. The second anchor point is the September 1st White House fact sheet that was issued out of the White House in conjunction with the President's visit to uh, Alaska uh, this past summer. And um, the President himself actually made spoken remarks about this while he was in Alaska, uh, but the White House uh, statement formalized it uh, and uh, provides uh, no ambiguity as to whether there was an S or not at the end of that statement. It's a written statement, you can read it yourself, and it said two things, that, it, that the administration will propose to accelerate the acquisition of a replacement icebreaker from uh, 2022 to 2020, and begin planning for construction of additional icebreakers, plural. Um, the White House called that a fact sheet, that means it's a fact, not a transcript. <laughs> now, how much will these ships cost? It's important to know that their costs will depend on um, two things in particular. One is the, the capabilities you build into it and the resulting design, and the other is the acquisition strategy. So how you 
move both of those variables will move the cost of the ship around, but in the general neighborhood of about a billion dollars, which is the figure that we're talking about today. Now, the project to acquire uh, a, pol a new polar icebreaker was initiated actually in the FY13 budget. In a month, next month, we'll get the FY17 budget. So this was four years ago that this project was initiated. And in the FY13 budget submission, across the five-year plan at that time, there was a total of $860 million in the Coast Guard's budget for that ship. That was a sum that was most or all of the estimated cost of that ship at the time. There was also a statement within the FY13 submission that the ship would have its contract award within the next five years, meaning by FY18, and would be delivered within a decade. In the next submission, the FY14 submission, that $860 million was reduced down to $230 million. It was about a 70% reduction in the five-year funding. There was still, however, a statement saying that the contract would be awarded now within the next four years, again, by FY18. In the next budget, the FY15 budget, the $230 million was kept steady from the year before, but there was no longer a statement about when the contract award would be made. So it was at that point in time that the timing for this project became uncertain to outside observers. In the FY16 budget, the funding was reduced further across the five years to a total of 166 million compared to that original number of 860 million. And again, there was no statement about when a contract award might be made. So again, there was continued uncertainty as to the timing of the project. Then we had the September 1st um, fact sheet from the White House about procuring an icebreaker in FY20. And that was characterized as an acceleration, a two-year acceleration from a date of FY22, which publicly was not even a known date. So one way of saying it is, yes, that's a two-year acceleration from the previously unannounced date of FY22. Another way of characterizing it, some observers might say, is that it is a partial, a two-year unwinding of a four-year deferral from the original date of FY18 that was implied uh, under the FY13 and 14 budget submissions. But whether you want to call it a two-year acceleration or a halfway unwinding of a four-year deferral, um, in either case, we have a ship now uh, that is to be procured in FY20, according to the White House fact sheet. And that gets to the time gap that uh, Senator uh, King mentioned earlier. Uh, the current operational heavy polar icebreaker, the Polar Star, was um, reactivated and brought back into service uh, in 2012 for a period of seven to 10 years. That's the estimated uh, service life under the work that it received. So that ship is to leave service under that estimate between 2019 and 2022. If we get a new ship, if we procure one in FY20, uh, it may enter service in 2024, 2025, and that was the basis for Senator King's statement that unless you further extend that ship or bring the polar sea back into service, we could have a gap in our heavy polar icebreaking capability of anywhere from two to six years. Now, the fact that the Coast Guard's budget at one point had 860 million in the FY13 submission, but now has a lot less, is really a reflection of a larger situation that relates to the a very significant reduction in the total size of the Coast Guard's acquisition account. Uh, Coast Guard officials have testified over the years that to adequately fund all of their various acquisition needs on a timely basis, 
they would like to see an acquisition account uh, that ranges, uh, that averages uh, anywhere from one and a half billion per year up to two or even two and a half billion per year. And in the FY13 budget, the Coast Guard's acquisition account was averaging about 1.5 billion a year. But in subsequent years, it has been reduced to 1.0 per year on average, or 1.1 or 1.2. And so the fact that the icebreaker became, in effect, an unfunded requirement can be viewed as a reflection of a larger situation of the Coast Guard's acquisition budget suddenly being reduced by one-third from what it had been the, the previous year, from $1.5 billion a year down to $1 or $1.1 or $1.2. So it's not so much that the icebreaker itself is unaffordable. The icebreaker is simply uh, one reflection, an early harbinger of other challenges the Coast Guard may face if its acquisition budget continues to be uh, closer to one billion per year as opposed to one and a half or two billion a year. So what are the issues going forward that result from this situation? The first is people will now be looking to see if there is funding or serious funding or serious initial funding for this icebreaker that the White House mentioned in their fact sheet that they want to procure in FY20. And what is serious funding? What would be a robust funding or an initial increment? Well, we only have the model of what uh, the earlier funding profiles for this ship looked like. And if you were to go uh, to those funding profiles and use them as your model for what your definition of seri a serious initial increment of funding would be, those earlier profiles suggest that um, a serious quote-unquote initial increment of funding would be in the range of 100 or $120 million in the FY17 column. So that might be one way of looking at what amount of money you might want to see in the FY17 column. And if it's something different than that, then the Coast Guard uh, will then explain why it is uh, compared to the funding profiles that we saw in earlier years. A second issue has to do with procuring the ship using non-Coast Guard funding, and it's worth remembering in that regard uh, that the medium polar icebreaker, the Healy, uh, was funded largely through the Navy shipbuilding account. Uh, it was fully funded in the Navy shipbuilding account. A fraction of its cost was then rescinded and then reappropriated back through the Coast Guard's budget. But in the end, the ship wound up being largely funded through the Navy shipbuilding account. So there is precedent for acquiring a Coast Guard cutter using funding that is appropriated through some other agency's budget. Now, the Coast Guard's current official funding strategy for this next icebreaker is to have it funded on a whole-of-government basis, to go to other government agencies and, and have them contribute. But the question then that that raises is whether those other agencies have been directed by OMB to, in fact, pony up the money uh, to help make that strategy work. And if OMB hasn't directed those other agencies to cooperate with that, then where does that strategy go in the long run? Another issue going forward is the idea of building polar icebreakers for the United States in foreign shipyards. This is a proposal that some people have made. There are some foreign shipyards that are interested in doing this. They are advertising that they can do it at a lower cost than uh, what would be the case if you built the ship in a U.S. yard. Although it's not clear what design of a ship these foreign shipyards are talking about when they say they can build the ship at a lower cost. But that's what they're saying. Now, in conjunction with that idea, some people have said that the Jones Act will get in the way of entertaining that option, that it would prevent us from uh, thinking about building an icebreaker uh, in a foreign shipyard. 
Um, I don't know where that idea came from. Uh, it has been repeated a lot. The Jones Act does not prevent the U.S. Coast Guard from buying or operating a foreign-built uh, polar icebreaker. There are, however, two other statutes in the U.S. Code that are of note. There's one in Title 14, the title that covers the Coast Guard, and another in Title 10, the title that covers the armed services. And they do require that military vessels be built in uh, U.S. yards. There is, however, uh, a waiver in both of those provisions uh, that the president may authorize exceptions when he determines that it is in the national security interest to do so. A couple final issues going forward. One is the idea that Senator King mentioned of awarding a contract to design a polar icebreaker with a contract option in it to build the ship. The polar icebreaker acquisition can be viewed as competing for limited acquisition funding against ongoing programs for building other military ships and aircraft and vehicles and weapons and other equipment. The builders of these other end items are known. The builder of the polar icebreaker where such a ship to be funded currently is not known. And one potential option for addressing the situation of the identity of a builder of a polar icebreaker not being known would be to competitively award a contract for the detailed design of a polar icebreaker with a priced option built into that contract should fund, uh, to build the ship should funding at some point be appropriated for the construction of the ship. And then the final two issues, I want to reiterate that the challenge that the Coast Guard faces in finding funding for the polar icebreaker is a reflection of a larger situation regarding the limits on the size of the Coast Guard's acquisition account as a whole. Uh, the icebreaker is simply the, or an early example of a problem of not having enough money uh, to fund everything that you want to fund. But if the Coast Guard's acquisition account is kept in the range that it is currently in, one or 1.1 or $1.2 billion a year, then there are going to be other things in the future that the Coast Guard is going to face difficult decisions about in terms of being able to fund, such as uh, their desire to get two offshore patrol cutters per year once that program gets up to speed. And then finally, um, because of this situation of funding challenges and trying to find the money for this ship, uh, people have talked about the leasing option. And it's been noted that uh, there are few or no existing uh, polar icebreakers with the kinds of capabilities that we would want that are available for leasing, which means that if you want to get into a leasing arrangement, you have to think about building the ship and then leasing it. And so if that's the kind of option you're looking at, then you move ahead and you look at the comparative timelines for building that ship under some kind of build and charter arrangement or under a traditional acquisition, the comparative costs of doing that, leasing versus traditional acquisition, and how those costs are scored under budgeting rules and then the comparative capabilities. And you can take yourself through that analysis. It's been done before. You can run the analysis again using updated uh, information and assumptions. So these are some of the options and some of the issues moving forward given those two anchor points that we currently have, uh, the mission needs statement and the, uh, from DHS and the September 1st White House fact sheet. Thank you. That was extremely illuminating. Thank you very, very much. Um, what I like to do, because we're a little pressed for time, I just have uh, two questions that I'd like to, oh, ooh, and you guys might need to turn off your microphones or we're gonna get a little back feed. Thank you, thanks. Um, 
I, the two questions I'd like to pose to the panel, and while you're thinking of your very clever answer, we'll go out to the audience to bundle a few questions, and then we'll collect them, and then I'll ask each of the panelists to take a, which they can choose which questions they would like uh, to answer. Two that came to my mind, um, one potential option perhaps we haven't talked about is joint procurement. So how could we perhaps think creatively of working more closely with the Canadian Coast Guard and producing something jointly? I mean, obviously we have NORAD, we have such close cooperation. Could we consider some type of joint procurement? What would that look like? What would the, the challenges? I mean, I, I think we can all list the challenges, but is that a, a potential? Um, the second question I have, we've all talked about seasonal, seasonal adjusting to activity, but we've really seen a significant slowdown in activity, certainly in the American Arctic with, with Shell's decision. Um, we may see continued slowing if uh, global commodity prices remain suppressed for the next several years. Um, and we're seeing the knockoff effect of that on infrastructure, delay of a deep water port in the American Arctic, postponement of projects. How much of that uh, slowing of economic development is an influence on doing exactly the things you're talking about, the traffic vessel management schemes, the traffic lanes, the corridors, what have you. Some of that is, is very much contingent on getting that economic activity going. So I just, how you're navigating uh, these very challenging global economic days. So while their wheels are spinning on those questions, please let me open it up. We have microphones, raise your hand, please uh, give us your name and your affiliation. You sometimes have to speak very closely into that microphone. And again, because of time, we'll ask that the comments are very short and the questions are very concise. Let's begin in the back, thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you to the speakers, uh, Duke Snyder, Martek Polar Arctia. Uh, Mr. O'Rourke touched on it briefly about the possible mitigation uh, for the gap in icebreaking services between now and construction. We've heard from our, our keynote speakers, our lead speakers, and, and quite a bit in the, the media that we're not going to see either Canadian or American polar icebreakers until 2022. But the fact remains that right now the gap exists. Uh, personally, uh, having sailed in the Arctic from July through to November uh, in the Canadian Arctic in the early part, uh, nine days wait for an icebreaker uh, in the center of the season uh, with uh, the uh, U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Spar, the only U.S. Coast Guard uh, Cutter north of 60 at the time. And at the end of the season, following Tony, uh, who came out with the Louis Saint Laurent on board uh, two Finnish icebreakers that came through October, November. Question is, Primarily, I think, to Gary and to Tony, uh, what about the mitigation now? Are you looking at ways to augment services for the short term until we get the new red and whites? I'd, I'd like to two-finger that, sort of thinking about the polar sea, uh, the other one that's in uh, dry dock and another high heavy icebreaker. Sorry, I meant to add that to my list. So I just want to make sure we're sweeping. Oh, we have two over here, Matt. Thank you. Hi, I'm uh, Ryan Brown with the CNN. Um, in terms of freedom of navigation, that was brought up earlier with, uh, in terms of icebreaker operating and the Russian militarization of the Arctic. In terms of how the icebreakers, next generation icebreakers are approached, kind of handling a situation like that, would that be considered in terms of, you know, if it encountered a freedom of navigation challenge or issue? 
Um, <clears throat> I'm Max Meislish, uh, intern in Congress. Um, in 2010, NOAA estimated that it would take upwards of 25 years to map the prioritized areas of the Arctic seafloor. And I was curious, what is being done to expedite the mapping of uh, Arctic waters, in particular U.S. Arctic waters? Terrific question. I just want to make sure we'll take the sweet, fantastic questions. Captain Potts, why don't I have, begin with you, and then we'll just work our way down the line. Thank you. I, just, uh, I think I'll just speak on the, uh, the first question, the joint procurement one. Uh, we have an MOU with the United States Coast Guard on, uh, on ship design, and we've exercised that uh, MOU to share uh, design, operational requirements, best practices. Uh, but we haven't gone to the extent of looking at cooperative building. It, I'm sure it's an idea in the back of everyone's head, but we have not gone there yet. Um, if anyone would like to follow up on that, I do have our project manager for the polar icebreaker here today, and he can speak, uh, he can speak more on that. Um, with respect to slowdown, uh, we see this all the time. We see uh, energy prices go down, activity ceases, but it may only take a day or a week for that oil price to go back up. It'll take a world event and it'll go back up. And uh, I think we have to be prepared for that, uh, that event. So we just can't look at a slowdown, a slowdown in a snapshot. We have to look at the long term that yes, energy prices will come back and that we need to be prepared for that. So I agree that um, you just don't know. I mean, there's there's vast resources there. There's the, the, uh, every prediction I've seen doesn't tell me that we're going to we're entering the next ice age in our lifetimes. So I, I don't think it's I don't think the dynamics of the weather are going to change while the dynamics of the economy might. So I think we have a, actually a very unique opportunity as a government to actually plan this out and figure this out and maybe do it in a budget budgeted, budgeted deliberate fashion. So my sense is that we should keep doing what we're doing. You know, the, one of the things I failed to mention is the Coast Guard's uh, Arctic strategy is to be implemented over a course of 10 years. The Navy's roadmap is 10 years so that they can, we don't see an immediate need to rush every asset that the U.S. Coast Guard, the U.S. Navy, or the U.S. government has to the Arctic. But we see changes coming that we can prudently plan for, and that's what we're trying to do. So I think these little sine wave, uh, Changes are, are probably going to normalize, and there'll be more activity than there was 10 years ago. So we need to be ready for it. Um, I, you know, I, 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 we often think about sort of a joint procurement idea. Um, the, the, sort of the rub, and, and this is not a Coast Guard position, sort of a Gary Rasikoff position, but Senator King offered it. When you excite the industrial base, they want to build the icebreaker. <laughs> And so while, uh, you know, they're going to want to build it with their workers, and I think the con congressional support will be focused on employing folks that are in their district. So that's the rub that you run, plus the, le the legal requirements that Ron so eloquently described. Um, the mitigation piece, can I go to that? Oh, yeah. The mitigation piece is, we are studying that right now. You know, everybody can do the math, although we're not sure exactly how long it's going to take to build the icebreaker. You know, the nominal figure out there is 10 years. But as I think everybody in the room talked about, it's been 40 years since we built one. So I, I tease the acquisition professionals all the time. They'll, they'll tell me how we don't know the price, we don't know this, we don't know that because it's been 40 years, but they can tell me almost to the day how long it's gonna take to build it. I'm like, how can you do that? So, so we need to go out and do the industry engagement that the uh, commandant referred to. And when we, we, I mean, there's been a lot of advances in technology. So we'll, we'll see how long it takes to build it. Um, it it's certainly, you know, if, if, 
If there was a miracle and a billion dollars appeared, a billion extra dollars appeared in the Coast Guard's um, budget in 17, we couldn't give you one in 18. You can't get there from here. So we'll, we'll figure that out. So we are looking hard at the mitigation. Um, right now, we are, we've got Polar Sea up in the dry dock at, at Swan Island in uh, Portland, Maine. I was fortunate enough to visit her last week with the Coast Guard's Chief Engineer, Rear, Rear Admiral Bruce Baffer. And we went through, MARAD's looking at it, the NAVSEA professionals are looking at it, and we're conducting what's called a material condition assessment. Because there's really a couple of schools of thought out there. Um, do we reactivate Polar Sea like we did Polar Star a few years ago? Um, do we put money in Polar Star and keep it going? How do we figure this out? Well, the first thing we have to do is Polar Star or Polar Sea has not operated in a long time and it has not been preserved. So we need to know what condition it's in. So we'll know that by July and then we'll have, we'll do the business case analysis. Is it worth the money to redo, to reinvest in this thing, to bring it back to life so that it could perform the missions that Polar Star is doing right now? So the other sort of the other competing idea is, or do we invest some of the money that we would have put into reactivation into sort of making that a rolling seven to 10 years on Polar Star? These things, I'm not an engineer, um, so I, I, I await the reports by Marad and NAVC, and, and I really think, um, and this isn't to sort of pat the Coast Guard on the backer, but we really struck gold in contracting with Marad and NAVC on this evaluation of Polar Sea because they do this professionally. I mean, the Coast Guard doesn't really lay up ships, we just keep driving them. Um, so they know what to do, and they know what the issues are, and they know what it costs to bring things back to life. And more importantly, Loss and I were talking earlier, you, you try to redo Polar Sea, that ship was not constructed to be deconstructed. So there's a lot of hard steel you gotta cut through to replace the engines if you want, which was eye-opening to Admiral Baffer. Because, so you got to play all that into the costs and what does it design? Because it's not like it's plug and play. There's no comp um, compartmentalization or any of those type of things that we, we see in maybe modern designs. This thing was built in, well, shoot, it was designed in the late 60s, built in the early 70s, commissioned in 76. So we got to think hard about that. But we are committed to doing whatever it takes to providing a heavy polar icebreaking capability from now on. So whether it's reactivation C, keeping STAR going, looking at some other options before the new ones are built, we will continue to perform our critical missions of opening McMurdo and other uh, missions as the president might dictate. Yeah, just to answer your, give another answer to your question, the first one about procurement. I mean, another alternative strategy is somehow escape the reality of the budget cost? The answer is no. Both countries have very different and, and s some similar uh, national interests, but uh, we won't be operating, I don't think, joint icebreakers to do our national interest, particularly the United States and its presence in the Antarctic and many issues down there, many and a range of issues for why we operate there as probably the leading country in Antarctica. Your second question about the slowdown. Slowdown in Arctic shipping or resource development has no real relationship to the need of the United States for an icebreaker because I think you're trying to correlate and others are trying to correlate icebreaker escort with actually our national interests of why we have the ship. So I think there's plenty of opportunities for the commercial world to operate icebreakers, even maybe joint, you know, international organizations. Uh, but but not uh, between the two countries, and I, I think it's uh, apples and oranges kind of different different approach. 
Um, there were two of those questions that fell into my lane. One was the joint procurement, and so uh, just to add to what's been said, I think the the idea behind it is that you can get some acquisition cost efficiencies due to uh, increased economies of scale in production, and you might also get some life cycle operation support uh, economies if you were able to do this because there would be commonality in the, the parts and so on on all the ships. The challenges, as were mentioned, uh, the key one is capabilities. and. Uh, even though two countries might want to build polar icebreakers, it doesn't mean they have the same requirements for what they want those ships to do and therefore may wish to design ships that have different features in them. So you would need to find a way to overcome that challenge. There's also differences in national timelines for when they would want or need to have those ships. There's the industrial base issue and, and the desire of shipyards in both countries to have some kind of participation. So you would need to uh, uh, work that challenge as well. And um, uh, there have been attempts to do this in the past. There was a NATO frigate program that some European countries tried to cooperate on. Um, and so there are precedents for thinking about that, but those earlier precedents also tend to show up the challenges that I just mentioned. I think uh, at a minimum, and the key thing is what um, has been mentioned by one or two of the speakers, which is the sharing of design knowledge. That in, in effect, to some degree, we already have some uh, uh, aspect of jointness in procurement through the sharing of that design knowledge. Uh, and this is something that, uh, as I understand it, the Coast Guard uh, has done uh, to uh, a fair degree already, reaching out not only to the Canadians but to the Nordic countries as well to gather in uh, uh, design uh, um, knowledge that may be of use in our own programs. So if you want to consider that design knowledge an aspect of joint procurement, then you might say, well, perhaps to some degree we're already there. The second question was uh, uh, to mitigate the gap and to bring back the Polar Sea. The Polar Star was repaired and reactivated at a cost of about $60 million at the time, which was several years ago. You put some inflation into that. You put into the fact that the Polar Sea was cannibalized a little bit to bring the Polar Star back, plus further deterioration over time in the Polar Sea because it's years later now. And the baseline estimate for bringing Polar Sea back started at $100 million, but now people are saying that that uh, figure um, may be or is likely to be too small and that it's something north of $100 million. And whether it's $200 million or some other figure is not yet known at this point. But that's the kind of money in a very ballpark sense that we might be looking at to bring the Polar Sea back into service as a second operational heavy polar icebreaker. Fantastic. Well, hopefully we'll get your freedom of navigation question answered in our, our next uh, discussion. Well, barring Senator Murkowski's success at Powerball tonight, uh, I think we all know we're going we're gonna to be very closely watching the FY17 number to see what that means. So all eyes are on the budget. And I think for me, what the panel really raised, and I thank our, our questioner, this mitigation strategy, the gap, the interim, what does it mean and what are those solutions? And we certainly had a lot of thoughtful ideas coming forward with that. So thank you to our panelists. Fantastic discussion. As always, our audience provides insightful questions. Please join me in thanking our four panelists. Now, don't go anywhere. We're going to do a little set change up here, and we'll have our final panel with uh, Admiral Mark Ferguson on the national security uh, challenges in the Arctic. So thank you.